You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. (laughs) Well, 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 February, Black History Month, what a mess, what a mess, what a mess. But (laughs) there's been some good things, too. Um, And I'm super excited to be doing this podcast. It's always a pleasure, right? So my book is seeing a finish line. Um, That's all I can say. But things are getting close to the finish line. Um, And I'm super excited. You know, I keep dropping these updates every blue moon but it's getting closer and closer to the finish line you know i i want to say what can i say that i wanted to update certain aspects and now that i have this window i'm 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 able to update some things to get the book at its most current speed you can only imagine what some of those updates might be um to the book because I, i have a little bit of time to interject a couple of things and so I took advantage of that but now I'm at a point where I'm ready to just say okay let's let's keep it through the production line because to be honest you know with with books you know even if they're on current topics or relevant topics you're never going to get it at the immediate when it comes out at the immediate like you know exact week right and so the thing for me is is that I want to at least put in material that is at least within a year apart from when the book releases, at least, you know? So the book comes out in 2023, which it is early 2023, of course. I want 2022 material um, as much as I can. Not everything is going to be 2022, but at least, you know, you know that this book was touched, you know, in the not too far from the year of which it was released. So that was something that was important to me. Um, and I was able to do that. So... Off to the finishing line we go. But I want to give people that update because people were hitting me up like, how's it going with the book? How's it going with the book? And I try to be very quiet about it because, you know, I don't want to tell anything, any details. But, you know, I thought that was important to let everyone know about, at least for now. But stay tuned. Um, I've been going out a lot. You all have seen me out on these restaurants. And I must say, it's it's. I've been on my restaurant tour this month. There was a lot of restaurants that I wanted to go to before Omicron kind of got us all off track. More on that in a minute. But I have been definitely hitting up a lot of restaurants I've been wanting to go to for some time now. And I must say, I've, I've overall been impressed. Um, everyone, every place I've hit up, I've, I've, I've liked um, in its own unique way. I must say, though, you know, some, you know, everyone is, there's a trend right now with all these small plates. I must say that. I don't know if the word is small plates or medium plates, but there is this trend of restaurants really trying to get away with giving these small plates, but I'm going to eat it anyway. (laughs) It's just become a thing that everyone's like making plates that are supposed to be shareable. And, you know, this is just, I'm noticing just in general in Philly, um, fine dining is that. There is this return of small plates. You know, I mean, what happened to the days, y'all, when we could just eat meals? What happened to just meals? You know, where I just got, you know, food 
that came with two sides and a main course, you know, by default. I sometimes feel like everything is kind of being, you know, a la carte like. So you have to get the beans on the side, the salad on the side. You got to, you know, like what happened to the days where you could just order a meal and everything was just on the plate? You know, I know that still exists, but in fine dining, it's starting to get, you know, you have to buy the parts to get the whole. You have to mix and match. And let me be clear, the food is phenomenal across the board, but that's becoming a trend I'm noticing that's happening again in Philly. It's like, and everyone's calling them tapas, but I don't even know if that's appropriate because with tapas, you know, at least the tapas I was used to back in the day, you know, these were those were all individual mini courses within themselves. So you would just add on and eat multiples, you know, but this is not that. This is just kind of like, okay, get some beans here, get a salad here. You know, the main course is really just the main dish of a big ass piece of meat. And they got some stuff under it, but that's not enough to call it a side dish. Like you couldn't eat it by itself, you know? And so I don't know if that's the new trend that restaurants are doing or trying to like force you to get all these other things. But I mean, let's be clear. The food is good. All the restaurants I've been to that, that are doing this, like Irwin's upstairs, um, you know, a couple other places, they're doing that and it's good, right? But it's like, yo, you know, I don't know who's coming out and just giving people plates. I think... I don't remember. I Well, I would say Middle Child Clubhouse might be one of the few places that's just giving people straight up meals. But I need a place that's like up there that's just giving up straight meals. And there is a couple of places. Let me, let me not act like it's just a complete exodus of this. But I just sometimes go in these restaurants. I'm like, look, I just want a, like, can you give me, can I get the size? Do you have a program where you could just say, look. Uh, for $50. So that's, but you know what I will say too, let me, let me back up a little bit. There are restaurants that are doing that to a certain extent. So like, for example, uh, Mr. Johnson, his birthday party tour continued this week. You know, his birthday was, was on Thursday. So, you know, yes, we just had an anniversary Valentine's day, the previous weekend, his birthday was all now. One one of the places we love to go to is Entree BYOB sometimes. They are really, really good. They have like a $50 prefix menu that's just flat, but they have a bunch of options within their prefix. So you get an appetizer, you get the main course, and then you get dessert. Not bad at all. And it's BYOB. So it's like, it's 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 really good. And everything on that menu is, is pretty edible. I mean, they have options. I mean, you could get duck, you could get a ribeye, you could get venison right now. They have this really good venison pasta dish. And I'm just shocked by the pricing and everything. I don't know how they do it, but it's incredible food. Um, and it's really good. So we had our, you know, we had his birthday there and it was a big old good old time. Um, and you all saw some of the stuff on, uh, on Instagram, I can imagine. But one of the things that I appreciate about them is that they give you an entree. The place is called Entree BYB. They give you an entree. They don't, they don't play around with all of that. And, and, and places that do the smaller portions or whatever do it. I like a prefix menu. So like when we went to Musies, which was wonderful, by the way, Musies BYOB. Oh my goodness. Now that was some good eating. They had a really nice, really, really nice, but also very, you know, this is, this is balling level. That was anniversary Valentine's Day. Okay. Musies had this Valentine's Day menu that was incredible. They, you know, they give you different rounds. So it was like we had oysters. We had all kind of different small things, but it was a part of a prefix menu set up. I like that. If you could, if you want to do the small plates and all that, make it a, make it a, a, a tasting menu. That's just like when you walk in, you can do that. Right. But a lot of these restaurants are doing it in this way. That's like, 
entree a la carte. You have to buy all these things a la carte. And I'm just having thoughts about it. But what do I know? This is really a first world problem. And I just want to just put that out there on the record. This is a first world problem. And for those who are like not understanding what I'm talking about, I, I listen, it's 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 not important. I'm just venting about small plates at restaurants. But if you holla if you hear me, because sometimes, you know, you just have to just get that off your chest. But nonetheless, restaurants have been really good. One thing that I'm super excited about is that my best friend, Amanda, is coming back to Philly. Uh, but she, of course, as you all know, she's been on her PhD journey, which has been everything. Um, you know, as a friend who has seen my friend serve time, um, serving time in academia, not, not, she's not incarcerated, but it feels like it sometimes, but she's in academia and she, you know, has been putting several years in ever since she's been serving her bid to get this PhD. It's, it's been, it's been a lot. But she's hit a big milestone, y'all. She's, you know, defended her dissertation. She's done all that. Now she's in the phase of matching. And she got matched at her her number one place, which is located near Philly. Uh, it's called Newman's, which is in Wilmington, Delaware. But she's living in Philly. And her other option was in D.C. And her other best friend, um, who's a sweetheart named Rowana, she wanted her to come down there. You know, I wanted to have my way. I knew I was going to have my way anyway. But, you know, we let her choose. And, like... As a friend, you, you, know, you, you know, we was rolling the dice. Was it going to be D.C. or Philly? Now, you know Philly always win. But, you know, she ended up ranking uh, the, the the numerous uh, uh, number one. And then the D.C. option was number two. And then she got matched her first round with her number one pick, draft pick. I knew that was going to happen. I'm so happy for her. She's super excited. And and let me tell you, one of the things I've been doing, this ritual I've been doing with a lot of my friends, and it's been a thing I've been doing for a couple of years now, is I buy them bottles of champagne, like really expensive bottles of champagne. And I'm like, I always tell them, because sometimes you just don't know. You're like, save this bottle for a very important thing that you have a wish on. Uh, and this trend started from another friend of mine who bought me a bottle of... Uh, Don Perignon and she told me she was a mentor she's a mentor of mine and she said to me whatever your big thing that you want save that bottle for that moment and that occasion and what that was I opened that bottle when I got my book deal my six-figure book deal with St. Martin's Press to write this book I just talked about and that was my you know what I saved that bottle for I said, I'm not going to open this bottle until I, I I have to say this is such a nice bottle like I just can't drink this like casually you know, I went on to drink other bottles casually, but this, I was like, I got to save this for a moment. And so I saved it when I got the book deal. So when I signed my book deal last year, I opened that bottle. And of course, John Perignon is good. It was very really good. It was a good glass. It was a good bottle. Um, and so for her, I got her a bottle, uh, a nice bottle of champagne. It was not John Perignon, but it was very nice. And I said to her, hey, you know, open this bottle when you get, you know, when, you know, you're going to get it and save that bottle. And she got matched and she drank that bottle the first first thing she did in the morning when she found out. And and it was sweet. And yeah, I think that's a trend I've just been doing. And I I'd encourage you to do it with your friends. Like give them bottles pre-celebration for something. If it's a job, if they're applying for a job, if they're uh, uh, applying for an opp opportunity, if they're going into something, whatever it is that they're wishing for or hoping for. Tell them to put a put a wish on that bottle, you know, like a, you know, put a, you know, dream bottles, you know, like a genie in a bottle. Put a wish in that bottle, whatever that thing, when you get that bottle, whatever that thing you you, you want or want them, something you, you're hitting as a goal, put a dream on it. You know, I did it for um, several things in my career. Uh, when I got into grad school, 
um, you know, USC, of course, and other things, but just put dreams on those bottles. Um, and, and give them to friends too for like, I, I, one of my best friends, I gave her a bottle when she finished her master's program. Cause she was really like, uh, going through the ropes of that. And I was like, once you finish that finish line, you graduate, that's the bottle we popping. And we did. So that's just stuff we do. Um, but it don't have to be champagne. It could be other things. You know, you, if you got some good cannabis or something, tell them, Hey, roll that one up. When you get out of this, whatever it is, whatever is nice that keeps people motivated, but just champagne is just a thing we like. So I, I really, I really like doing that. And it was, um, it was cool. So she's going to be here. So this summer, you know, I look at it like my, my, my friend circle is, is coming. My entire friend circle is slowly, but surely coming back to the place that started it all. We all met in Philly. We all are going to be back together and it should be great. So I'm so happy. Um, other things to be happy for or cautious about. So Omicron, y'all, the cases are dropping, like dropping. And people are out here. I mean, listen, the city of Philadelphia is showing their ass. They have lifted the restaurant band. Okay. They're like, yeah, we don't need any more cards. We don't need any more. Uh, you know, you don't have to show your proof of vaccination. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, it's that kind of energy. And I'm sitting here like, so we really just going to go back to like, we, we don't need this mandate. You, we don't need to, the city just said, fuck it. Like everybody was getting ready and, and getting invested. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everyone's like, yeah, well, we don't need that anymore. We're good on that. Mm, bye. Like, you know, I was looking, University of Pennsylvania is about to resume indoor activities. Like everyone's like, the cases have dropped so low. Now, last week, the cases dropped to 50 like 51%, I think they said something like that, 50-50. And so now they're just not requiring that anymore. And they're saying people still wear masks, though. I'm sorry, what the fuck? I don't get what that means. What do you mean? Now, there are some restaurants that are still enforcing it. So one restaurant I went to that I, I just have to shout out is Mish Mish, which is by my good friend Alex Tufik, who used to be the food editor for Philadelphia Magazine. Now he's decided as a food writer and critic to now open his own restaurant. And it's in Pashunk, you all. I went, it, the grand opening was this Friday, but I went Saturday night because um, I don't really like to go to restaurants on the day, the grand opening day. I just feel like there's a lot of nerves. There's a lot of stuff going on. People, you know, they're nerves. I like to go the day after because by then, you know, Folks got their flow. People are more calmed down. Reservations and stuff is a little bit more settled. It is chill. I went. The food is delicious. It's incredible. I have so many thoughts, but I really want, just want to say, like, you know, two figures, a young million like myself. And, you know, he made this restaurant, in my opinion, for people like us, young folks who like to eat well, but don't want something that's too pretentious. I will give you an example. He has muzzles on the menu. And he takes the muzzles out the shell. Now, again, first world scenario. I don't consider a first world problem. I love it. I was like, not the muzzles already being unshelled and ready for me to just devour with this delicious butter and this bread. Oh, my God. What kind of service? This is incredible. But he took the muzzles out the shell. They, they, they don't have the shell. Like, I'm so used to when I order muzzles, like, you know, it's a big ass steaming, you know, pot. And I, and I like them that way, Right. But I love this this concept. He takes them out. They're in this delicious like oil and it's just this lemon. It's incredible. And I never had like that. And I was like, wow, this is cool. So it's a very cool restaurant. Um, the food is really good. Um, there's no red meat on the menu as as far as I know. Um, 
they do have wine and you know they're gonna have cocktails and stuff uh the bar is gonna be a simple bar which is really cool it's a nice tight space it's definitely great for dates for sure so mr johnson and i went had a cute little dinner date um and and it was definitely date energy it's very sexy very hip the music is really good they have some really good music but it's a vibe it's definitely a vibe and everything off that menu. We we ate everything off the menu, by the way. So I tried everything off the menu. So um, what did I like? I love the swordfish. I love the the chicken. The chicken was so good. And normally I'm a chicken person at restaurants, but that chicken was good. Um, you could just tell people brine their chicken. You could just tell when, when you could just tell. Yeah, the chicken just was. Oh my god, it was so good. Um, what else was good? This this Armenian string cheese situation which was like a funnel cake thing but it was fried it was this good sauce it was it was wild and that shocked me because i was like oh this is gonna just be a mozzarella stick oh it was far from that what else on the menu was good everything on the menu was really good everything i i i'm trying to think of other things oh the octopus oh my god they have octopus and you know i'm a sucker for octopus anytime i go to a restaurant i see octopus on the menu i always order it because i just feel like you know, I, I'm never going to cook octopus at my house. I don't know how to buy it. I don't know how to steam it. I won't even touch it. So I like to go to restaurants and get things that I can't cook at home. Like, I'm never going to buy mussels for the house. So I like to go somewhere someone else makes it for me. Just like octopus. Or venison. Because I'm not going to kill Bambi any venison. I just can't do it. Um, so I thought I would say he was vaxxed. He was taking vaccination cards at his restaurant. So there are some places that are still going to require you to be fully vaccinated in order to attend their restaurant. However, a lot of restaurants were like, fuck that. Fuck the, fuck the verifications. We about to go in. Like, so they're, they're going ham now. People are really going ham. Um, and, and listen, it, it, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? People, people are, 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 you know, I, 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 listen, we didn't already have a situation where we were about to open the doors and then all of a sudden everybody was like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going, we're going to, we're just going to wait and see. But I, you know, I just, I hope that this is a step in the right direction, but I just got a feeling that I'm a crime. I'm just having a feeling that, you know, COVID itself is like, look at us like that. We, we, well, hold on, wait a minute. Y'all thought we were finished. We got another variant for y'all. Like, I don't know. It's still wild to me. It, it, everybody's lifting this off real fast. I don't know if they're losing money. I don't know what's going on. But you anti-vaxxers, even the Oscars. The Oscars is not requiring people to be fully vaccinated in order to go to the Academy Awards. Because yeah, they know Hollywood is a bunch of anti-vaxxers up in there. There are people that are not even going to the SAG Awards because the SAG Awards is putting in vaccination things in place. But the Oscars is going full throttle this year. No, you don't have to provide proof of vaccination. I mean, I think there's conversation around testing. And you know what? I must say this, though. If you can afford testing, testing might be more, more effective with, of course, vaccinations, to be quite honest. But, you know, in some cases, testing is effective because you know in rapid time because remember people can be asymptomatic you can be fully vaxxed but you could potentially spread to someone who is unvaxxed but if everybody is fully vaxxed then the likelihood of anybody spread so that's the catch see it only works if everybody the, the lack of non-testing is necessary i feel like if you're in a situation where everybody's fully vaxxed because at the end of the day if you're going out there's going to be some risk involved but it's about minimizing risk and i think that that's the thing people keep you know, screwing up here. Like, I just think the best, the most optimal situations, if you're like at the Academy Awards, it might appear something high end like that where you got money, 
is for everybody to be fully vaxxed and tested. Like that's what people do for weddings and other festivities. I, I think that, that is, if you can afford to do all of that, that is it. But I feel like, in my opinion, the bare minimum should be fully vaccinated. Unfortunately, the city is lifting off a lot of these restrictions and other parts of the country is as well. So it's starting to get really weird. But they're still trying to keep the mask mandate in place. Like I told you all last week, I'm going to keep my mask on if I can because the mask has kept me from getting sick in general. Like that mask is not just protecting me from COVID. Okay, it is protecting me from just y'all nasty ass breaths, germs, you know, just other things that I don't want on my beak. So the mask protects and shield me from all the other shit that I could be getting based on all kind of things. Right. So I, I think masks have been helpful. And a lot of people have not been getting the flu or getting sick uh, and other things because of the mask. Right. So I, I like this this concept of having a mask around. Like, I don't know. I mean, once they start lifting I have to wear a mask now because um, Uber is still making making you wear a mask when you get inside of the car. So by default, I have to have a mask on because I Uber everywhere. But I am thinking about the the realities of when that stops. When when Uber starts telling people they don't have to wear masks about getting the rides, that it's gonna be a it's gonna be wild for me. Not for me. I'm gonna probably still keep the mask on, but I don't know. It's 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 just. We got to just take it, take it in, take it in. I feel like once it get a little warmer, maybe things will change. But, you know, it's still, it's still wild out here. And, and the thing that people have to understand is like, I mean, even Queen Elizabeth just uh, was diagnosed with COVID. A woman who was an activist in Philadelphia who did a lot of work around housing died because of COVID. Tyrese's mother died because from COVID. People are still dying from COVID. And I just want to be clear that there's a real moment here that people are still dying from COVID complications. Like COVID has not like left, left the building yet. Yes, cases are going down. That's a miracle. But people are still getting impacted by it. People are still dying. People are still getting COVID, testing positive. Like how does Queen Elizabeth test positive for COVID? Like Buckingham Palace, all those guards. I mean, it's still spreading. So listen, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be be mindful. Be be mindful. Be vigilant because I, you know anything can, anything can change. We saw a change. Everyone's been following this podcast from season one to now season two has seen the excitement in me and then seen the hold up. Wait a minute. What the fuck? Here we go again. So I just I'm I'm just still like waiting for the other shoe to drop if it drops. I don't want to be a, a Debbie Downer. I don't want to be a negative Nancy. But I do at the same time. Have we, we've been through this before. Look, my wedding season that fall when I got married and, you know, there was all the parties. We did the gala. We did all these things. Everything was grooving. Everybody was fully vaxxed, you know, all that stuff. And then after my December holiday party, everyone was like, yo, this Omicron is spreading. Everybody around me that I knew was getting it. You know, not my close friend circle, which was really good. But a lot of folks that was in my organization, other people were like, yo, I'm, I'm tested positive. And I was like, what? And so it just changed. We had to shut everything down. Like we had no in-person activities in January for, for the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Like we just said, we, we're just not having anything because it was just getting too wild. And now all of a sudden, here we are, like, you know, that, that lower end of February, and everyone's just waking up being like, yep, cases are down. We're just going to just stop all this. My whole thing is that if it was working, keep working it. Work it when we get, work it, <coughs> work it so well 
that we don't get, we get down to like, you know, 75% or something. Like, give us a really strong number. I feel like if you're like at 51, 49, it's still 50-50. Let, let, let the cases go down even lower. And they're saying they're going to lift masks off the, the lift the mask mandate when, once the, the cases go down. But I'm looking like, but no, 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 no. Keep everything in. Make people have to. Something must be economically influencing this. I just can't see why they would just be so quick. It's just... Look, all I got to say is what the city say is not what I'm going to do. Okay? I'm still... Honestly, I'm still going to probably try to go to restaurants that still mandate fully vaccinated, to be honest. If I can find those restaurants. Because I'm not ready to be with you non-vax people. No shade. But if you if you if you've made it this entire time not being vaxxed and telling stories about how you then got COVID two three times, I, I'm really looking at you sideways. Like you're the per- you are the weakest link. You are the person that 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 I heard about. I'm just saying you are the person that we all was scared about. We need to remain vigilant. Seriously, I'm not saying everybody got to be completely over the top acting like they're antisocial and want to go anywhere. But let, at the same time, th- let's just not lose all of our marbles here. Just a thought. So, Trump, every week there's always a thought that Trump might, this might be Trump's week before he gets locked up or something going on. Um, I'm, I'm just being very uh, observational on where, what, what Trump's next move is going to be. Um, I'm not, you know... I'll say this. It's been interesting following because things are getting real. Uh, We found out that, you know, of course, Leticia James over in, um, or Tish James as Attorney General of New York, um, she is able to subpoena uh, the Trumps, you know, ask them for questions. And they need to respect her her, her leadership and answer her her questions and and all that jazz. So that's on the table, y'all. That that is still happening. she can now do it. The judge has ordered it. But also, the judge has also ordered that people can file those civil suits against him for the January 6th insurrection. Like, he has to show up to courts, the courts and the lawsuits that they can proceed. And he, you know, he can be sued. So that is also happening. Um, he going through it, man. He He's going through it. Trump is going through it. But it's just like, it, it's like, damn, like, when is it going to come? Like, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I... You know, part of me feel like all this is just going to be a bunch of hype. But, it, it, like, I think the people are getting wary. People are getting tired. I, I also think to a certain extent, I mean, Trump is still in the public consciousness, right? Because there is a likelihood that he can run for re-election. He might want, he might want to run for president in 2024. I mean, that's what people are saying. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, listen, the man lost already. Like, let's not pull the the Hillary thing again, okay? No shade, but let's be real. Like, Hillary ran in 2008, and then Hillary ran... Skip 2012, and then ran again 2016. Th- this is the same situation with Trump. Trump, you know, ran in 2016, won, lost in 2020. Now you want to come back in, in 2024? Like, these men, this man is, these men are, uh, no, uh, listen, they're old. These are some old white people. These people are in their 80s, late 70s and shit. Like, th- this is... Y'all are past stage retirement and y'all are trying to run for the highest office in the land. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, 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 I'm I, sorry. I'm not an ageist. I'm just saying that I feel like at a certain age, there are certain 
things we shouldn't want to put our comp- our country in, if it's our country, whatever. I just, I don't know. I just think that the U- president of the United States is one of the toughest is one of the toughest jobs in, in the world, and the people that are trying to go for it are people past retirement. Like we out here acting like people that are sixty running for office is young to be president. Like, mind you, Obama was, you know, fairly in the right age range, his 50s and, you know, to run for, to be president. And people thought that was young because some of his opponents were like 20 years older than him. Like, no, you want to be astute. Like, it's sometimes like when I see Biden's talk at press conferences, I'm just kind of like, is everything okay? You know, I just, you know. I just think about it sometimes. I'm like, is 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 he like? Is this, you know, at any moment, you know? And you know, Kamala is there, right there, waiting for her opportunity. Not, not, you know, maybe she'll run for president. I mean, there is speculation that she might give it the next go around. I don't know if it's going to be twenty twenty four. I mean, who knows? But technically, she's a VP, so she would be. The you know most people do VP did president. I mean that's what I did when I was vice president of Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. I I then moved to president. That's typically what happens. But we'll see, right? But as far as I know, the Trump the Trump elephant in the room, the GOP elephant in the room with Trump, that needs to get settled before we get to twenty twenty four. I mean I would like to see something go down before the midterms for him. Either they finally find the the the, the magical. Smoking gun or, you know, you know, these lawsuits or something. But something's got to give at this point. Because all these updates, all this drama, you know, it's like, okay, what's happening here? You know, Congress couldn't do it. Will will Leticia do it? I mean, I have faith in Leticia. I think she might. I think that the AG in New York is, 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 is putting in that work. And then you also got that Manhattan DA that's on his ass. So it's just a lot. You know, it's just a lot to look at. But I mean, every every week it looks promising, but then every week it's just kind of like, okay, like what's the delay? So, but speaking of delays and people showing their ass, Darius Crooks strikes again, y'all. This listen, this Darius Crooks character. I've been telling people for a while. You all know that I did a deep dive on him um, a while ago, and it was uh, it was a big deal, right? Like we we all know for people who don't know. Who Darius Crooks is, which you all at this point should know. He is a cook. Darius Cooks is a cook. He's a horrible cook. His food is not good, but he's popular because people like stupid shit. We we, we attract ourselves to stupid shit. So there's always going to be an interest in stupidity. I mean that you know I I want to be clear on that because people say, well, why is this person popular? There are people that for whatever reasons want to have a Darius Cooks experience in 2022. After many years of, of several black women coming forward, accusing him of various uh, uh, ideas, he, they've accused him of stealing, you know, recipes, uh, which I've seen for myself. There's some of the images and graphics he uses, not his. That's not the food he's cooking or whatever. He's done a lot of that. He's done um, doxing people. He's been accused of doxing people. He's been accused of targeting people, um, specifically black women. And there's not been enough um, coverage in the media about it even now. Um, you know, of course, I wrote something in the, the Daily for the Daily Beast. Of course, I had um, Angela, the Kitchenista Davis, who is one of the women who have really called him out for a lot of his fuckery. Um, she was a, the first ever special guest on my podcast last year. 
Um, so I've, I've, I've definitely have, you know, done my part in media to bring awareness to this particular man, this issue. Uh, but other people have not. And he still continues to go out and show his ass. Well, this week, there was a real big major issue. Um, he's being accused now of destroying an Airbnb home that they said he illegally rented to throw a dinner party. Now, this is all, you know, I am just telling you what's been said on social media. These are, you know, allegedly, I say the word allegedly, because you know how people get. Um, he blew, apparently, allegedly, he blew out their electric of the Airbnb and the plumbing, um, treating the place like an entire commercial kitchen. Um, Angela Davis, not active as Angela Davis, but the kitchenista, um, had did a whole thread about this and was reporting on this on her Twitter. She does a lot of citizen journalism. She lets the people know what's going on. Well, she was saying that uh, now he has doxxed the property manager. He was uh, allegedly escorted out by cops. And now today he just doxxed a black woman. Um, she said she was hearing and seeing. Now, this happened earlier this week. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, now, on Twitter... He did a lot of harassment to this woman in particular. Her name is Danielle Holland. And he named himself on his Twitter account, Danielle Holland, and then switched his profile pic to an image of her. And then there was tweets of him even um, stating information um, about um, like the fact that he may or may not have her social security number. And she has gotten on Twitter and, you know, said that, you know, she's been harassed by him and even was stating the facts about what was going on. And he is also sicking his followers on her to harass her. So there seems to be a cult following around, um, around him. And the, let me be clear, the Darius Cook stands that like him, they, 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 they just really think he's the truth even though a lot of things he has said has come to question that people think he's a scammer. People think that he's out here doing X, Y, and Z. And you know what? I People said, I don't know how people can fall for this man, but I'm going to have to tell y'all something. Like the Tinder swindler, like people like Nehemiah Davis, who I, I, you know, I can't stand that guy. Like Sean King, like some of these people who are out here consistently engulfed in accusations of 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 bad behavior. Let, let me be clear. It's one thing for a couple of people to say, you know what, I don't like him. There's people out here to be like, I don't like Ernest so much. I don't I don't like Ernest. I don't I, you know he gets on my nerves, right? Whatever, right? That's fine. That's like no one is a hundred percent popular. There are people that even hate on Rihanna. I know it's weird, right? But like there there's there's even people that think Meryl Streep is overrated. I know, right? But like that's that's life. There are always gonna be some people who are not gonna rock with it. But I think it said there's there's something to be said if there is this weird, aggressive, outward public campaign that is outwardly, you know, um accusing you of doing multiple things multiple times. Okay, it's one thing to say, you know what, I went to an event. And I had a bad experience one time at this restaurant or I didn't get along with this person or this person did whatever. But if you just consistently have just countless, you know, re re redundant, abundant accusations and, and insults and things being said about you, you there's at some point where some of that shit got to be true, right? Like I think about Trey Songz, for example. 
Trey Songs has had countless allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, he's been accused of rape multiple, multiple times. You know, um, Chris Brown, same thing. But but Trey Songs in particular, countless times. I mean, there's several, like in the past several months, I think I've seen about two or three, four uh, lawsuits or allegations or windows about Trey Songs and sexual misconduct. Now, let's be clear. He has not been tried in court or any of that. But, the, you know, at some point, where there is smoke, there is some fire there. there. Something must be going on, right? Like, if you're not out here doing what you're being accused of, are you not in situations or given impressions that you might be doing something? Like, something is going on, right? I, I, I'm a firm believer in that. I just don't think there is a person that's completely scot-free innocent and not doing anything when there's a situation where it's consistent, persistent, Right? One situation to whatever it could be a misunderstanding. Not talking about sexual assault, rape. I'm just saying in this Darius Cook situation, he's being accused of bad business. One or two situations where there could be some kerfuffle, sure. Businesses happen. People go through stuff. There could be a situation. But to have long-standing concerns that chases your ass from Chicago to Atlanta to wherever, and, and, and every step of the way, you know, credible black women are saying these things publicly and sharing their stories and providing receipts and there's government cases and lawsuits, like, at some point, you got to take a step back and say, okay, what's good? Because that's exactly what happened with Sean King for me, was that Sean King was consistently in, in, in situations where people were speaking out. And even his actions himself, like, he doxed me. He's doxed other people. He's put other people out to be targeted of online harassment. His followers... You know, as you all know, a couple years ago, did the same to me. And he did it to a, a black woman named Carissa Brooks. This is repeated behavior. And so when you see patterns in that way, yeah, that's a red flag. But, you know, listen, we live in a world where people are giving R. Kelly second chances. There are people that still want to believe the best in Bill Cosby. And there's still people that want to continue to gaslight women and victims and, and other folks, right? So I, I know that it's not hard for me to believe why people will still deal with this guy because they have dealt with, they have put up in support far worse, like Kanye West, right? There's still people fighting that grace. And I don't know why. Well, no, I do know why. Because I think that there are people who are also doing similar shit that these people are doing. And if one person falls for it, then they will fall for it. Scammers like to be around scammers. If you're somebody who is just so empathetic for Kanye, you have done some of that toxic shit that Kanye's done. You're literally stalking women. You're supporting a man harassing his ex and stalking his ex. You all have done that shit. I, I, I'm convinced. I, you, you have had to do it. Or you're, you're, you, you think that that's okay. That man's fighting for his family. No. If a woman does not want you, leave her the fuck alone. She should not be forced to have to be with you because of whatever. But see, I'm going to get to that in a minute. I don't want to get caught up all up in Kanye shit right now. But I saw this to say that there are people who I feel like resonate with these people for various reasons. There was a reason why T.I. was out here trying to defend Bill, Co Bill, Bill Cosby. Because there's allegations that him and his wife was out here, you know, partaking in some, some, some indecent relationship with people. Okay? Some of those women came out publicly and accused them of some type of human trafficking type of shit. Right? So... Retrospect, okay, that's why you, T.I., was like on the low trying to feel, defend 
Bill Cosby because you got your own skeletons in your back. And I think a lot of these men who defend people like that have their own shit that they're dealing with. It comes out eventually. And I feel like that's what was happening here is that it, it will eventually come out. And I think that's what happened with um, T.I. and others, right, who who do all that cross-defending. Now I'm hearing that R. Kelly is trying to get Cosby's attorney who helped, I guess, with the acquittal. Like, you see what I'm saying? R. Kelly, Cosby, like all these people using the same lawyers, the same circle of people, you know, it's, it's, it tells you exactly that, all you know, birds of a feather flock together. And that's what's happening. So as far as the situation go with Darius Crooks, I mean, I don't, you know, it's, a, it's such a weird thing at this point. I, I, I feel for Kit the Kitchenista. She's incredible. She interviewed the woman who was doxxed. There was a black man in that woman's life who stepped in and was working to protect her, which he did. He spoke out. There's a lot of important people that's doing that work. You know, I know I'm often invested in it as well. But what I will say, and I say this about any of these situations, but to the people who are being doxxed or being victimized or having these issues with um, Darius Cooks. You got to come forward in your own way because to put it on journalists or put it on community activists or others in the industry to consistently have to peddle these stories, to have to continue to tell these stories and put these stories out there, you, you know, it's, it's, it's exhausting. You know, it's a lot of labor. Um, you know, and the kitchenista is doing this and she's not getting paid for it. You know, she's doing it because she cares. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not fair to her, right? I think that she has to be the only one that is, you know, holding these stories and is telling these stories in certain cases, right? Um, you know, journalists can do it too. But see, we're here, let me tell you this as a journalist. What people have to understand, and I'm going to say this in my podcast and make this very clear. Because a lot of times people just think we we could just pull rabbits out of our ass or we could just make stuff, you know, make stuff click, click. Um, I have realized in the past several weeks since I did my story on Campaign Zero that a lot of people don't understand the journalism process as much as I thought they do. They just don't. And it's obvious that they don't get quoted for stories and they don't, they don't get involved in stories. Let, let's talk about it. In journalism, when you do a story, right, you do a story that's investigative or about people, right, and you're dealing with accusations, you have to recognize that you're making a case not to yourself or your friends, but to the public. And everything that you put out needs to be able to be supported and substantiated. And it has to be done with people who are credible and people who have sufficient information to verify the claims that you're making. Because at the end of the day, your job as a journalist is not to pick a side per se, but if you have a side or you believe that there is something going on, you have to defend it. You just can't have an opinion about somebody if you don't have anything to substantiate it. Now, in your personal life, you can. If people tell you things and, and it's hearsay or whatever, you want to believe it or you trust the person, by all means, you can make your own decision making based off of that. However, in the world of journalism, right, you have you can't you can't just base it off of someone's experience. So I believe these victims personally. I, I believe them. I believe them. I, I do in my experiences with Darius Cooks in trying to get him to talk for a story and just seeing the things that I've seen that has not been publicized on the record. I definitely believe that this man has a problem. That's my opinion. Okay. However, 
as a journalist, I can't just simply put that out there without sufficient evidence. So if people tell me these things in confidence and private, I can believe them. However, if they're not providing information that I can use publicly to to uh, support an argument against this person or to share information that will get the public to see this person in a different light, I can't month forward with the story. I can't. So a lot of people want to slide in my DMs and send me Instagram posts or, or, or screenshots. And I'm like, listen, all of this is cool. But if you're not going to come forward, if this can't be used, then telling me this does nothing for me. It's, it's actually infuriating. Don't give me anything off the record because I cannot use it. I can't do anything with it. And as a journalist, I like to go public with shit all the time. If something's off the record, it, it, it I, I can't use it. It's infuriating. Even knowing about it and can't do anything about it does not help me. So all these people that want to kiki and cupcake with me and be like, yo, let me call you and say about this. But off the record, I don't I don't have time. Sorry, can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. If it involves other people. Now, if it involves somebody I know or a friend or or something like that, oh, by all means, hit a, hit a brother up. But if it's dealing with just random situations, it does not help anything. Like telling a journalist a bunch of stuff off the record is like telling a journalist, here's all the thing that's wrong with the world, but you can't do anything to solve it. What the fuck am I supposed to do with that? It's frustrating. And I feel bad because there are some people that will get on social media and they have the ability to do innuendo. They can do speculation. They can do all of They can talk loosely. But let me tell you something about journalism, okay? You can't talk loosely like that. You end up like Tasha Kay's ass with a lawsuit, okay? And here's the thing. They don't sue journalists individually. They sue publications because if a publication puts out something that's completely false or something that is not verifiable or backed up. If they put something else out there like that, they could be liable to go to jail. Not jail. Uh, Well, uh, who knows? No, you, you can get liable to be able to pay for damages. So people often sue for money. So when Tom Cruise sued the National Enquirer, um, you know, because they ran those racy ass tabloids about him, he won that lawsuit, he got paid, okay? Uh, when, when Cardi B sued Tasha Kay, for defamation of character and, and, and assassination of character, to be honest, because of her YouTube show spreading that misinformation massively, Tasha Kay had to cough up millions. That's that's lawsuits, y'all. That's real. Okay, that company got sued. Tasha Kay's company got sued. So you can't you can't think that any journalist that's working for any media outlet is going to run any information that can put them into in, into harm's way. I mean, we're seeing that with Sarah Palin right now at the New York Times. Fortunately, th- those charges got dismissed. But here's the thing. If, if a person can make a strong case, a strong, strong case, the situation could go to the next level. But most of the time they don't because journalists do a lot of things, right? Journalists do fact checking. Um, journalists go through the point of of, of having fact checkers call sources, even sources for it. So, for example, with Campaign Zero, I didn't just write that story based off what everybody said. Every accusation that was made, it either came from the source individually, they provided a some substantial amount of evidence that would suggest their opinion. Everybody was asked to verify. Anyone who denied something had an opportunity to deny it. There were statements provided. It was a lot of context. That's how you do this. You give people opportunity to comment. You reach out to people. You reach out to lawyers. You give everybody a chance. Journalists are the messengers. We provide information. We don't weigh in if we're doing reported stories. If we're doing op-eds and opinion pieces, sure. But even then, you have to have an informed opinion. You have to back it up with sufficient evidence and proof. 
I just want to explain my job to you all because some sometimes I get a lot of emails from folks who say I listen to your podcast and I want to give you this tea. Listen, the tea is 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 not. If people are not coming forward, don't tell it to me. It's it's my one of my biggest pet peeves. One of my biggest pet peeves is people telling me stuff off the record for stuff that I don't know anything about already and expect me to do something about it. That is the most infuriating shit ever. I've had people come to me and be like, why do you write about this? I told you about this. I'm sorry, but uh, who who's going to talk on the record? Do you have receipts? Oh, okay. You're just trying to just, you know, gossip. And I tell people, don't gossip about real shit, right? Don't gossip about sexual assault. Don't gossip about, you know, embezzlement of funds. Don't gossip about, you know, you know, people being exploited in some bad way. Like, that's nothing to be like, you didn't hear this from me, but blah, blah. Like, that's not funny. Like, that's people's lives are impacted. And if you're not and if you thought it was such a serious issue and you wasn't willing to put your name on it or back it up with some level of real evidence, then you're a part of the problem because your complicity in the situation does not help. Journalists are in the public profession in a business to basically help tell the truth to get people informed so they can make smart decisions. If you're someone that's not participating in that process, then what are you doing then? Mm. Let that rest with you. I'm going to let that rest with you. Think about what are you doing in that situation? Are you letting this person pursue? Now, I get it. People are scared of retaliation. But understand that fear of retaliation does not allow people the courage to, to get change. So if you're scared of retaliation, that's fine. But understand that your fear of retaliation is trumping your, I think, in my opinion, personal obligation to do the right thing. Just, just saying. Just, just putting that out there. Because... Look where we're at now with the NFL. So I, I I think about this NFL situation, and I'm very upset with Loretta Lynch. Loretta Lynch. You know, this is a black woman who had the top position, you know, at one point in time. You know, the the real AG, you know, who who came after Eric Holder, who I loved Eric Holder. And Loretta Lynch became one of the black first black women. To be, you know, the AG of the country. She was running the Department of Justice. She was the Attorney General of the United States at one point. And made history. And and was a big damn deal. I remember her. Right? And a lot of people like her, you know. She's a Delta. She She's definitely has been a person that people admired. And now she's an attorney working alongside the NFL... Going after a brother, right, Brian Flores, who was a former um, ex-Miami Dolphins coach, who is currently suing the NFL for racial discrimination um, in their hiring practices. This is a big damn deal and a big, you know, black eye to the NFL. Well, of course, the Steelers recently announced that they are now hiring him as an assistant, uh, not a head coach, but an assistant, right? And, of course, the Rooney Rule was inspired by some of the work of the Steelers. So it's only right that he's there. But it's just that this is all happening so soon. He decided to take the job. But they're going to use this clearly against him in the optics, right? Because, see, the issue with the NFL is 
and I agree with so many people who have said this, Jamel Hill and others, is that it's not that the NFL does not recognize it's racist. The NFL does not want to look racist. The NFL is not interested in being an anti-racist establishment. They're interested in being a don't look racist establishment. And those are two different things. It's that says to us that outwardly they're going to, you know, window dress, but inwardly they're going to continue the same fuckery that's been happening for a while. Um, for Loretta Lynch to be tokenized, because let's be real, she's being tokenized to defend the NFL. Is it money that you needed, ma'am? Is it, is it money that you needed? There was no way that we could have found you work opportunity, like this money, because the NFL clearly is weaponizing this black woman as a way to build up their credibility. And you're walking right into that trap. Why? Why would you be on this side of history? Anybody could defend the NFL and could have done whatever, but why would you choose to? And, you know, the outcome of his case, you know, to be honest, is, is going to be shaped in some type of way. But why, Loretta? Why would you do that? Why? You know, I mean, there's you, you have to have known all of the optics and everything involved. I just, it's just disappointing. And it's so funny because it's like the NFL don't know how to find black people for anything else. But when they got in a racial discrimination lawsuit, they know who to, they knew who to call then, right? Like they get one of the most respected black, um, legal people in this country. I mean, honestly, she could have been a Supreme Court justice if that's what she wanted, you know? She, she could have been a lot of things, but, but to be in this position and to do this, it's just disgraceful. It's disgraceful. I, I don't have anything nice to say. I'm, I'm just not happy about it. And I just think that once again, we see these types of stunts happening in our community at an all-time high. Like, th this is the shit that people... I mean, they always fight. It's always going to be someone that's going to take the bait. I mean, with the NFL, it was Jay-Z. It, it's, it's, it's all of those people. And then now it's Loretta Lynch. It's like, damn. Like, what kind of money are they paying, y'all? Like, they must be paying them good money. But money, is like, our ethics, our morals, why do we do this to each other? It's, it's really infuriating, to be honest. And it just goes to show you that the, the, the NFL is just such a devil. It's just such a villain. Um, and yet people are so complacent and they still want to support it. How do you support this shit? I just, I just can't. And it just, and again, once again, all this progress is coming. Is it really coming now? Exactly. So speaking of DEI stunts, I, I just, everyone's been asking about this and um, I have been thinking a lot about what I wanted to say and when it would all make sense. Because a lot of times you can see something and you can ask some questions, but then you have to see some things kind of happen. And, and then it kind of, you know, um, solidify things that you may have thought of the back of your mind. And I'm talking about what's been going on to Inquirer. The Philadelphia Inquirer last week had its entire diversity and action plan in shambles, to be honest. It, it was a it was a it was a hard week for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I'm gonna say some things and I'm just, you know, a lot of you are asked, and I think I'm ready to have some opinions out loud about it. Um, definitely going to be writing about it, but I want to talk about this. So, as you all know, the Philadelphia Inquirer has been around for over 180 years. 
It is one of the oldest papers, newspapers in America. Um, it is a paper record for Philadelphia, as you all know. And, you know, they have had a history of racism, of course, right? Like any other landmark publication in Philadelphia or media company, right? From WHIY to Philadelphia Magazine, where I'm the editor at large. Like as a black journalist navigating newsrooms in Philadelphia, New York, LA, or wherever across the country, all of these legacy publications um, clearly have had to have a racist history of some sort. Um, Some of them have put out public apologies. You know, Philly Mag put out something in 2020 um, and even before then. And, um, you know, the Los Angeles Times did. The Baltimore Sun recently did. Like these apologies pop up. But everybody responds to their apologies differently, right? Some apologies mean people getting the fuck to work, right? They work within to, to address these issues. And some people do that and then some. But what the Inquirer recently have done is something that's like a little crazy. Um, and, and it's really brought in a lot of um, mixed feelings and reactions and different thoughts. So, you know, let's let's start with the biggest affront. So in 2020, during the racial uprisings, you all know, uh, if you don't know, that they ran a headline that said buildings matter too. Yeah, two as in T-O-O with a comma after buildings matter. As if they were making this statement because there was a column that was trying to make this case by Ingrid Saffron, who uh, is a Pulitzer winning um, critic, a writer. Uh, she talks about um, architecture and the city and development. And, you know, she has a really, you know, popular column. And a lot of people read it. But this piece was trying to make this argument about how the damaging of properties during racial uprisings um, will, you know, will lead to damage that will impact those very communities in a, in a very bad way. You know, when I hear shit like this, personally, like, let's just not even get to the headline real quick, but when I hear this column, well, very well said by old white women. That, that's all I have to say about that column before I get into that headline. But, like, the argue, the column was trash. I read it a thousand times, and I think it misses the point that, yes, talking about damaged buildings... First of all, that's not even the kind of conversation that should have been happening at that moment. But again, only an old white woman would think that that's okay. If not a white man or an editor or a newsroom that's predominantly white would think it's okay to run that narrative. Because at Philly Mag, right, the editorials that I was writing was saying, listen, this is the voice of the people who are enraged. The people who are or who are who are doing this 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 protest, right, and this damage. This is coming from people who collectively live in those communities, um, they may not be from that particular neighborhood. They, they may have not damaged their own store, but like it was an outcry because of the fact that no one was listening or caring. So fuck a building if you don't care about people's lives in those buildings. Like you missed the fucking point, Ingra. And I think a lot of people who was reading that shit was like, are you serious? Because to me... Buildings and humans are different. And there's clearly dumbasses who don't get that. Because I'm sorry, if you if you value the destruction of a building, buildings can get repaired. Lives lost cannot to this corrupt system. So telling me that buildings matter in Philadelphia is the biggest insult ever. Because buildings have always fucking mattered in Philadelphia unless they were public schools. <laughs> unless they were recreational you know, recreational centers. Which, to be quite honest, nobody's schools would be out here being demolished, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't see recreation centers being demolished. I saw commercial property and real estate 
that oftentimes don't hire our people or or discriminate against our people that that don't give us pay fair you know wages those were the buildings that were mostly getting demolished right institutions that that claimed to be one thing that was not another that that profile people right and and make them feel like shit when they would go into places to try to buy certain products but yet everyone wants to frame it like, well, 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 there was a this building, there was a this building. That's not, that wasn't the point. And so it was very clear that the Enquirer was more invested in talking about buildings mattering than recognizing what was the causes. But maybe if they actually had more black writers and staff and editors and people that was there to stop this issue, then maybe this would have occurred. They didn't. And what led to was the editor, Stan Wachowski, um, stepping down and resigning. Um, and that was in 2020. Ever since then, the Enquirer has been on this campaign to try to repair its image, just like the NFL repair image, right? They've been having, you know, all of these initiatives and, and, and things they were doing internally in their office, and they've been trying to work their way through. And one of the things that they've released and what they've put out has been a project called A More Perfect Union, um, which is centered around this democratic concept and questioning of uh, Philadelphia's history of racism and next steps and how they wrestle with that with being the, a, a, a city of firsts, right? The first hospital, the first university, Penn, right? And all of these other institutions um, that has come. And so it's talking about Philadelphia's history in this way that also includes examining the Inquirer because the Inquirer's part is racist history. Now, personally, I think that there is so many interesting questions and concerns and things that I have seen since this project has dropped this chapter that came out that is it is it even like okay let me just (laughs) back up here so this project was proposed by a black woman her name is Erin Haynes who I know very well she's an incredible journalist she's a national journalist she lives in Philadelphia she's not a Philadelphia native but she's lived here for a couple of years she does a lot of work on MSNBC. She's the founding um, editor of the 19th. And that, you know, she does really great work. And the reporter who reported on this first story for the Inquirer, which I'll get more into, his name is Wesley Lawry, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, black journalist, um, has covered Ferguson and beyond. So the person who started this project is a black woman. And she is, of course, a journalist who... Definitely has covered race for many years. So she's, you know, in her own right as an expert at this. However, she's on the Linfest Institute board. And Linfest is the entity that wants to protect and save the Inquirer. Um, she proposed this project, but she's on the Linfest board. She was on the Linfest board, proposed this project while there. They fund the project. She becomes the editor for this project through, through the Inquirer, through Linfest. And it's a big partnership from the entity. So the Linfest Institute is a nonprofit, a great nonprofit, have worked with them, has have have collaborated with them, still do. They are funding a lot of support to help the media ecosystem in Philadelphia thrive. That's their mission. But especially the Inquirer, because Jerry Linfest, who was who the, to which he's a philanthropist, he's now deceased, who is the, the namesake of the Linfest Institute, the Linfest Foundation, that Linfest, right? He really believes that the the Inquirer should survive. That was his passion. So his money and his lots of his money, his millions of millions of dollars is is pumping into a foundation to keep the Inquirer afloat, 
Now, LinFest Institute is not only invested in supporting the Inquirer, but trying to keep the rest of the media ecosystem engaged and connected. So there is, to a certain extent, I wouldn't say a conflict of interest, but you can view it that way, that a LinFest, a Black LinFest board member, proposes this project that looks like it wants to examine the Inquirer and history of racism in Philadelphia. Her project gets funded and supported. The Inquirer staff is working on it because it's all going through the Inquirer. It's not like it's going through Philadelphia Magazine anywhere else, but it's going through the Inquirer, right? And I think to a certain extent, the marketing for this project has been something that the Inquirer has been using to emphasize its investment in covering diversity. And I'm saying sit the fuck down. Not to the creator, of course, but to the Inquirer. I, I, I think the issue I'm having with it is that it's not that it's the project itself, right? The project itself, I think if it was in a different media outlet, it may have been received differently thus far. But because it's the Inquirer, it's it's just really weird. So the reporter that's that's covering the Inquirer, the they they brought in Wesley, this national journalist, this outside his outsider to Philadelphia in regards to his expertise of the city at large. They brought him in to do the first chapter of this project, which goes into the Inquirer's long ongoing history of racism within the publication. Because I guess the narrative is they have to, before they can talk about everybody else's racism, they have to check themselves. Fair. Apparently, based on reports that I've read, the Inquirer's editors were not involved in this story. They were not involved in shaping the story or editing it. So Gabe Escobar, who is the um, the the boss, basically, at the Inquirer, the top editor, he is, did not have his hands in any of this. He did not edit it. He did not do anything with it. Um, you know, Erin, of course, was editing it. She's over this project. And Wesley Laurie, which is a, a, a colleague of hers, of course, he did the reporting. And I was interviewed for the story. As you all know, if you read this story, I was interviewed. You know, I will say this. <laughs> the story that you think you're reading versus the story that it is are very different. I will say that reading it, you know, there was nothing I did not know. Um, pretty much, I I mean, I think the copy editor who wrote the headline was interesting, right? They 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 interviewed this person. Of course, this person not name did not you know be named for the story, but there was just like this interesting history. And I think the way that the story was written is that it almost plays up into this way of looking at racism as almost like a very like past tense thing at the Inquirer versus a current issue at the Inquirer. It felt like when they talked about the racist history, the history almost felt like it was past tense versus still current. And for Black people that currently work at the Inquirer, they all knew that to be a lie. Um, some of the journalists, the Black journalists I've spoken to, um, who's been involved with the project in some capacity or have you know been in the room and, and have been given emails... They kind of was upset how the ending of the story was because it just kind of presented this narrative of like, okay, the Inquirer is working towards difference. Will it matter? People don't know. And it was like a lot of ambiguity. But then there was also this like erasure of the fact that there are still current problems. But no one understood. I, I was sitting there like, well, what are those current problems? Has the girls not said anything? Is the tea not being spilled? What's happening here, right? 
So I'm just studying and I was just observing this unfold. Um, you know, the story, you know, I think with this project and I think with this story and what I've been wondering is, who is this for? Because if it's for black people, right? Black folks already know this. Like black people in Philadelphia already know this. Like, is this for white people? Because it was written well for a white person. This was, this is clearly, I don't know. So far, it looks like it's for white people. Which, if you're trying to appeal to white people, by all means, tell them what what the what's going on here. But like, I don't know. I just felt like as a black person who's lived in Philadelphia for over a decade, who's been covering Philadelphia locally aggressively, that none of that information was like a whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it just it was like okay, we we knew this, but whatever. It just didn't feel like it was anything really expansive. But again, when you have white critics, when you have white people gassing it up, it's really weird. And so one of the things I saw on Twitter was that a lot of white people in media was gassing up this project in this chapter. Like, oh, look at this great piece. It was very self-congratulatory. And then the people of color who I saw that was talking about the story were just like, I'm very triggered today. I can't read this. It's making me sick to my stomach. I, I don't want to. I mean, I just don't. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. There was two different feelings being here. And... To me, I have to keep it 100, but it appears to me and it looks to me that the Inquirer is capitalizing off of its own fuck shit. Like it's capitalizing off of its own history of racism. Like they're capitalizing off of. They found a way to say, how can we get views? How can we get visibility? How can we put something on the awards season campaigning? How can we, you know, make ourselves look like the heroes in our own shit? And I feel like this reframing of this whole conversation positions the Inquirer in a way that makes it look like, you know, well, we got racism, but racism is everywhere. So we're not only going to read ourselves, we're going to read everybody. And I'm just like, you're in no position, sweetheart, to, 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 to read anybody, Inquirer. Like, you're not in a position to, to try to create your own, I feel, sanitized version of racism. Because I feel like even when I read that piece, it didn't really get into the core crux of what was happening or, or what was even currently happening. And I feel like so much of the old anecdotal stories, right, of Asa Moore being called a boy, we all heard that story. Or Maya Odom, right, this legendary journalist who at one point was called Aunt Jemima. We all heard that story. I just don't know what made this even bigger, but maybe, again, for white people, right? Was this written for white people? And a city that is a plurality of black, none of this made any fucking sense. <laughs> so I remember getting phone calls last week, you know, as president of, of PABJ, and people just being like, what the fuck are they doing? And I was like, listen, I have nothing to do with this project. You know, I know that the creator, her intention was different. I know that, Wesley Laurie, who reported the story, you know, he, you know, was doing the best he could what he could. I I mean, if I had choice, I may have picked a reporter that was not that was not at the Inquirer, but in Philadelphia. A black reporter who did it. Don't ask me to do it. I I I am too involved in a lot of things in, in this situation that I couldn't do it, right? Could I have done it? Um, if, if I mean, could I have written that story? Yes. And I would have done it a lot differently. But I could not because I was one, a source, right? I'm the president of Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. 
I cannot write that story and do that. And also, I don't want to do anything with the Inquirer. But however, it would have been interesting to see a black journalist in Philadelphia do that story. Because I think they would have cut through a lot of the okie doke stuff and would have really hit some of the core of what made issues. Because the way that timeline is looking, it's not it's, it's not telling people that there are still issues in the Inquirer that are so symbolic to what was happening in the 70s and 60s. Like there are still microaggressions and things happening there. And I wonder how many of those people shared that to Wesley. I don't know. But I would just feel that I don't know who this story was for. I, like I said, you just have to wonder who is this for. If it's for white people, then then let me take my black ass up out of the equation because everything I read in does not give me anything new. It gives me either it's redundant for black people. It might be like awe-inspiring for white people because the only people that was acting like they were surprised or was enjoying this, which was ridiculous wording, were white people in media who was just self-congratulating it. But then I'm looking like the white elite of Philadelphia media praising this does not actually tell you the core crux of who this should have been for or who should have had say in it. And then, I, and then it begs the question, like, who asked for this? Like, who actually asked for this this entire endeavor? Um, is this what people wanted? But again, it's being marketed by the Inquirer as a part of their whole DEI effort. And here's the part of the story where everything goes south. And this is why you don't do things like this. So the story came out last Tuesday. On Wednesday, um, Lisa Hughes, who is the publisher of the Philadelphia Inquirer, put out a lengthy apology. Now, let's be clear. This is like her third apology. Well, her second. She did one in 2021 to mark the one-year anniversary of The Building Matters 2. And then in 2020, the Inquirer did an apology, another apology, and that was in 2020. So 2021 apology, 2020, well, 2020, there was an apology. 2021, there was an apology. And now here we go, 2022, an apology. Perfectly timed and scheduled to come after the day after this story comes out, right? And the Inquirer apologizes to black journalists and black communities, um, you know, for its 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 the harm it's caused and, and everything of that nature. So now we've got an, another apology. We've got another apology from a you know uh the publisher. I'm sitting here the whole time like, okay. So we have another apology. I felt like the apology ran um a little hollow. Um, given the fact that, okay, so, you know, if you was going to give this apology, why did this apology come prior? Like, why did you wait to this story to come out to then give this in-depth apology? It just seemed like it was timed in this, like, very, like, apology tour marketing plan. It just felt highly marketed. It felt highly produced. All of the things coming up to this point just looks so, like, I don't know. It just, it, it gives me like a DEI disaster. Like, it's like a very much like, we're going to tell everybody our history and then we're going to then apologize for it. And then we're going to move forward to read everyone else to feel about their racism. It's just something about that that makes me uncomfortable. And the fact that it was being promoted heavily in newsletters, of course, people was marketing it. The Washington Post had did a review of the first chapter and was getting national buzz. Just all of this just looks too fucking staged. But I have to continue because I, I have so many thoughts. So we get to this next point, right, where this apology comes out. And even more black people are like, uh, at, that's working at the Inquirer, just like, what the fuck, Right. Some of them are like sad about it. Some of their feelings are mixed about it. It's just a lot of emotions going on. 
So the next day, the next morning, the Inquirer, um, not a part of the project, but the Inquirer does a, a, a bombshell expose on WHRY, which, you know, WHRY has had some issues with unions and labor issues. There's been a mass exodus of staff because of pay issues. And a lot of them, you know, were dealing with the fact that, you know, that, that CEO over there is getting way more money than he should. And there's also a lack of... um morale at WHRY now. A lot of the top senior people like, you know, um, you know, other people, uh, Sandy Clark, who was there, a lot of other black, um, you know, journalists have left or people of color have left. Um, it's just been a lot of, of, of issues with morale at WHRY. It's, it's, it's interesting. So people have left and inquired to the story about it. And uh, the inquirer, to a certain extent, people looked at them as being heavy in poaching a lot of that talent. A lot of people who left the WHRY family or through Billy Penn has now come over to the Inquirer. So you have like Layla Jones, who used to be at Billy Penn. Now she's at the Inquirer working on More Perfect Union, apparently as a reporter. You have uh, Max Marin and Ryan Big Briggs. They were at WHRY working through them. Now they're over here at the Inquirer. There's a couple other people who have left and went over. And so there's been some 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 major talent acquisition and poaching of sorts, right? So they wrote this story, you know, beating their chest, the Inquirer did. And then the shoe dropped. Later that same day, last Thursday, y'all, the News Guild of Philadelphia um, basically said they're filing a grievance against the Inquirer because a Black employee that's currently working there is getting paid less then the less experienced white reporter for the same job or journalist for the same job. What the fuck? Are you serious? There is pay and equity issues, racialized pay and equity issues. They have claimed, okay, this is the News Guild, that they have consistently demanded um, for changes and that this person was set up. Um, they 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 made the allegation um, in, in, the, in their statement on social media. It went viral. People were talking about it. And then everything that the Inquirer had did at that point that we went womp, womp, womp. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, hold up, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Not Tuesday, y'all admitted to racism. Y'all talk about y'all history of racism. Y'all spent all this money on this project to, to expose yourselves to this. And then Wednesday, y'all come out with an apology talking about how y'all going to be an anti-racist publication. And then Thursday, there's a grievance being filed that an, a, a current black employee at your publication is not getting paid the same as their white counterpart for the same job, even though this person has less experience. Chow, talk about a boomerang. Talk about a 180. Talk about what the fuck. I was shook when I heard this. I was like, oh, so that's when I said, you know what? Now I need to let y'all know how I feel about some of this stuff. Because I was saying to myself, it just seemed like when white people try very hard to, you know, absolve themselves of racism, something else racist is, is going on. Like, something was weird about all of this to me. I mean, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist. I just think... It's weird that in one week this was going down. I'm just like, what 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 is going on? So, first of all, News Guild, they called them out for that apology. They was just like, it's hard to take that apology seriously when y'all out here still doing this to y'all black employees. I'm just like, 
So what? So so what is going? Oh my god! Like, I I I a total a total epic flop. So now the inquirer is saying they're not going to get into details about how they're going to address this issue, but they're going to be looking into some stuff with the guild. They told this to the Philadelphia Business Journal. Um, on I think Friday, they told them that they were going to be looking into it, but they wasn't going to get into the details. But they wanted to emphasize that the Inquirer is is a non discriminatory place, non discriminatory place, and that they don't you know judge people based on other outward characteristics. Spoken like a well legalized statement, but what the fuck? The DEI of VP of DEI, he has you know taken a week off. I wonder why. Not conspiracy, no conspiracy theory, but he took the week off. So I'm just like, it's a lot of shit going on. It's a whole lot of lot of shit going on over there. Because I'm just sitting here like, now what? So this project that's supposed to be happening year round, right? I'm kind of like, how, how does the product the project have credibility? How do you engage the community at this point? How, how does the acquire justice address this issue? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, a pro the project can do its thing, right? Like, there will be great stories. But I'm sitting here looking at them like, you all put a lot of money into what was supposed to be this big marketing. Because I don't care what anybody say. It, it's, it's marketing, right? Like, no one invests money into something that's not going to help viability. This project, this, this whole examination of racism was supposed to be their way of proving to people that they were holding themselves accountable. But now we're realizing they still got issues over there that they're not necessarily being accountable to and they still got to address, which is why I tell white people, before you try to publicly go into your own coffers and try to ask for a dialogue or a discussion on racism, please make sure you have your ducks in alignment. Please make sure you have taken care of your business before you try to push play and push go on the next step. See what the inquiry should have did if I was their consultant. See, I'm giving out free consulting right now. I should be getting a fee. But if I was the inquirer right now, I would have said, what are the issues currently on the table dealing with racism before we put out this project and put other people? Because I feel like this is a slap in the face to all of the black creators who was involved in trying to put this project together. Even though there's still some, some things that needs to be getting work on, they don't deserve this, right? The black staff, yet again, is, is, is having to wear a clown mask because of what has happened by their white editors by their the, the white staff. Even though this is independent of the Inquirer's hands in this particular story, they are supposed to be working on the rest of these stories. How is that even possible knowing what we know now? Like, I wonder if that black employee who isn't getting this equitable pay, what is, does she even want to work on this shit with the, I mean, who, who's, who's doing it, right? Who's trying to do the work, right? It's, it's a real big question mark. But I, I go back to say that The Inquirer created this situation where it was like, we got a history of racism. We want to start the conversation. White people are never ready to start a conversation on racism that they cannot dictate and control themselves. The issue with the Inquirer was they wanted to have a conversation about racism at their publication, but they wanted to set the parameters on it within themselves. They didn't want to have the time to take a step back and look at what they were doing wrong. Like, hey, did I fuck up on this? Did I did I do this wrong? Did I miss this beat? They they actually wanted to spend this time doing this this internal digging, right, in themselves. They wanted to act like they were doing a reckoning of sorts. But then when the shit got too hot, then they wanted to retreat a little bit. See, my issue is you're supposed to lean into that discomfort if you're ready. 
they're not ready. They're not ready. They're, they're not ready to lean into that discomfort. And, and to be quite honest, it's obvious they want to set the parameters on the table because here's the, here's the million dollar question. When you're apologizing to black communities, when you're apologizing to black journalists, all of your DEI plans, where is the community in this conversation? Did the community ask for this project? In the words of Monique, I would like to see it. Um, Did the community advise on these initiatives that they're doing? Where are the community in this work? In this this process? In this plan? What is the plan? And the plan, right, has to come from the people. Okay? Not just the staff, right? Staff should have a role for sure. But you can't just come in and tell people what they're going to do or what they're going to work on without bringing in the people that this is supposed to be about. I would like to see that community advisory board. Where is it? What happened to it? I would like to see community that's not a part of the media elite, right? Those are not the people that should only be the ones shaping this conversation. Where are the actual readers that you all claim that y'all want to engage, right? Because the numbers show in the audit that there's not that much Black readership at the Inquirer, and I can understand why. How are you going to engage them? What have you done to bring them into the fold if you're serious about addressing it? So this kind of makes me think about the NFL, right? That companies are working to, to, to try to scrub their reputation. But what they don't understand is that this is not something that you could just scrub overnight or with a couple of projects. Like, Black people are not that dumb. I don't know why you think Black people are dumb. Like, we're not. We're not. Like, you you think that you're going to just roll some project in and just think, oh, we're just going to just bite the apple and just say, yeah, we're going to do this. That's not how any of this works. And so there's just a lot of questions. And now that they're dealing with this grievance, which I think we're all curious to see how that unfolds. Because to be honest, it's really hard to move forward and, you know, kind of engage them on this belief that they're working to be an anti-racist institution when there is still accusation of racial inequity still taking place there. I mean, any smart person would have addressed all those issues before launching any project. Because at any moment, right, the News Guild of Philadelphia said, oh, y'all apologize for racism? Well, well, we'll then apologize about this. Address this issue then. There's still issues. And here's the issue. Are there more issues happening right now at the Inquirer? I will tell you all, without disclosing, I can confirm to you right now that there is another issue of racial um, inequity taking place at the Inquirer as we speak. There is, I have received information from sources that are there that are saying that there is another issue and incidents taking place there. And I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring the situation. I'm seeing how this person is going to address it. Um, if others are going to, what, what others going to do, but there are still issues taking place there. And I think that for me, it's hard to trust the credibility of, of a publication that tried to put themselves out in this very performative way with words and not actions. The moral of the story is, and what I'm getting to, cause I look at my publication that I've written for and all these white institutions. White people, white publications, listen up. We don't care about all the apologies. Give an apology, but at the end of the day, 
That's not an action. An apology is not an action. Apology, we're past the point of apologies alone. They ring hollow. There's too much extra shit. We get it. It does nothing to move. It's like the check, check, check. Are you fully verified before you get into a restaurant? It's like a, it's a mandate to get in the room, but it's not the fucking movement. It's, it's nothing. It really isn't. I mean, it's a necessary mean. Like it is a requirement, but it's like the bare minimum requirement. Okay. If you're going to have a plan, the plan needs to be informed, engaged, advised, and, and to a certain extent co-led by the very people who are being oppressed in this way. When we see Black communities and Black journalists advising and being at the forefront of these issues and these initiatives, not only being done by in-house staff, but by the community at large, then we could get somewhere. They're, they're risk averse to that. They're not ready to take in and receive that. But see, for other institutions that are not doing the fancy produce, project, product, um, productions like A More Perfect Union, those newsrooms are, are wrestling with that. They're working on that. I will tell you the places that I'm a part of, okay, they're having those conversations because it was a trend, right, in 2020, right, in 2021, too, where all these publications wanted to do these self-evaluations and publicize how racist they were. That type of trauma porn is something that we don't need to do. I, I'm not for it. I think that it's just corny. I mean, if you want to do a self-audit or whatever, do your audit internally. But to broadcast it for clicks and views and buzz, I just think it's tacky. I think the reality is, is that people want to know what you're going to do to address those inequities. Tell us about what the fuck you're going to do. We already know what the problems are. We already know where the, the conflict is and the issues are. But we don't know what you're actually going to do to move the needle forward to address it up front. I, I, I think that if people are not aware of what your solutions are because you haven't engaged them to be a part of that plan, that it doesn't matter what things you've done in the past or what apologies you're making in the current. Because if the problems are still persisting, they will still persist based on that, right? So like, I'm not surprised that there is still racial inequities at the Inquirer because they have not actually put out a plan that seriously addresses those internalized issues. They have not put out a plan that actually has been advised by the community at large and black journalists at large. They have not put out a plan that is open to being revised and edited by other people that does not come from within their internal staff. That's a problem. You can't internally investigate yourself. You can't internally hold yourself accountable. So again, it begs the question, who is this for and why? So we'll stay tuned and see what happens. But I just felt like there was so much going on that I, I just could not have said anything. And I am looking into it. And you'll get updates. So stay woke. So this conversation about Kanye West, there was this stupid social media meme that said something along the lines of like, oh, you know, if black women would, you know, if black Kanye would, would be okay if he had a black woman in his life. Something around that logic. And I know people like Shanita Hubbard, who's this incredible journalist who I admire, she wrote a really good piece about black women and, and, and people talking about saving Kanye. It was brilliant. And I retweeted it on Twitter. And I just think one of the things that annoyed me about this conversation, and not her, but her, her stuff was legit, of course, but that 
we're still like at this part of acting like black women are like the nurses, the doctors and subscribers to save unbearable, insufferable people like Kanye. What what made me laugh at the whole Kanye the black woman in his life narrative is that he's dated black women in the past, y'all. Like he was engaged to a woman, a black woman uh, before he was with um, Amber Rose, who was of color. And that was all before he went out with um, Kim. And then Kim and then, of course, Julia Fox, these two white women. So, you know, Julia Fox and him have broken up, which we all knew was going to happen. Like, the relationship was, what, two months? Like, it was just a circus. It, it was like, what is this? It's like, she was like a prop. And, and the media ate it up. And they used her as a prop. I mean, she, in many ways, there's no way that I'm, I'm going to ever be convinced that this was not a big old publicity stunt for her. Um, what's going on with Kanye and Kim, that shit is not looking like a publicity stunt anymore. I think she's unfollowing him off of social media. I mean, I don't know. I keep wrestling with that, you know? But I feel like where I stand at this moment is whether or not, you know, it is a publicity stunt, what it represents to the public, what it stands for to the public is that we are basically allowing a man to stalk his ex in front of the public and harass her current lover. And what that represents to me is more damaging than anything that is actually real. Because what it is doing right now is that people are taking this, like everybody is treating it like as if this is real, right? No one's acting like they don't believe that Kanye is losing it or that Kim is concerned. Everyone's buying into that. But there's almost this, this energy of, well, I don't like Kim Kardashian, so I don't care about this. We don't have to put that disclaimer there. I don't I don't care about Kim, um, how she makes her money as a celebrity. I don't. But that does not stop me from recognizing that she does not deserve to be stalked or harassed. No person do. And you don't have to have an opinion or like or care about what a person does professionally to justify their their decent humanity. Like no one deserves, no one should be raped. No one deserves to be sexually harassed. No one deserves any of those types of punishments. Let's let's be clear. No one deserves any type of abuse, regardless of whether you personally like them or not. Let's be very clear on that. However, we are seeing people do this disclaimer of, I don't like him, but no. I have people do that shit with me. They'd be like, I may not agree with all of your opinions, but why do you have to fucking agree with all of my opinions to think I have the right to live or exist or anything? Like, I just don't know why people put those disclaimers. Can y'all stop doing that? Do you, you know what I've done lately? I have stopped people in conversations that will do that kind of framing about an issue. You know, I don't agree with Kim on her lifestyle, but don't, don't do it. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that, that you, you can have those opinions. Two things can exist, but don't ever feel like that should inform whether or not you do the other. Cause it shouldn't, right? Two things can exist. You all know, I don't care about the, the Kardashians. It doesn't matter in this regard, right? I'm talking about, if we're talking about Kim and wherever the conversation is about Kim and being stalked, the conversation needs to just simply be, to be honest, Kim does not deserve to be stalked by Kanye. That's it. I don't need to hear a, although I don't agree, like, what does that mean? 
What does that mean? Or is it the notion in your head that by supporting the perception will be that by supporting this aspect of this person, that it will make people think that you support other aspects of that person's life? I hope we're not that dumb to believe that. I hope that we don't think that anybody is in blind allegiance to anybody in that type of way. Because we're not. We're humans. We're, we're, we're critical thinkers. We have nuance. There are things we like about people. There's things we don't like about people. We can admit the truth about some things and others, right? You know, R. Kelly is a great singer, but R. Kelly is a fucking predator. Like, those are things that could be true at the same damn time, right? You, I don't think we have to completely dismiss facts or think that people's work defines their character in a certain way. Like, a person that can sing well does not automatically mean that they're a good person. They just can sing well. And it could be still a sociopath, an abuser. That's R. Kelly. A person can do a horrible job in their career, but that does not justify them overdosing or dying or, or being abused, right? N none of those things are okay. And I think that that's what we have to stop doing as a society is that we keep putting some level of value on people based on labor. And that is the most neoliberal, capitalistic, problematic as assertion we can make. Like, like, like we do it with Trayvon Martin, right? When they was like, he was no perfect angel. Okay. And so that, does that mean that George Zimmerman deserved to kill him in cold blood? Because he wasn't a perfect angel? Listen to how you all talk about people and things. Because it shows you how much of a value point you put on people. It really do. I listen to the way that people talk about me sometimes. I, I, I see how they frame things. And I'm just saying to myself, that's not a compliment. That's backhanded as fuck. I mean, somebody one time told me, you know, I mean, you know, I don't agree with, you know, your, your, your homosexual lifestyle, but I, 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 you make some really good points. Well, well, that's a, that doesn't make me feel good that you thought that was a compliment. You, you thought that telling me that you don't agree with me being gay somehow, but saying I make good points that that was going to clean up the other part. It felt like a backhanded compliment. It didn't feel good at all. And that's exactly what it means when we show support for people. If you support somebody, you don't put a condition. You don't frame it. You don't put a disclaimer. You just support a person. Like, support people unconditionally. Victims. Support victims unconditionally. Right? I mean, that's what I do. I would hope you would. Like, no one needs to hear a disclaimer. I think it's the stupidest thing ever. But then also, too, like, stop putting black women up for assignments, y'all. I'm not a black woman, but I just, just, I just get tired of seeing you know, black women on social media be thrown up for assignments that they didn't sign up for. Like who thought, who the committee thought that giving, you know, black women, like, like, like black women don't have other things to do. Why don't y'all put, I mean, like, like clearly, cl clearly, you know, white women are, are, are being, you know, don't, if no one ever says so-and-so needs a white woman in his life, you know, uh, you know, because, because there's a, there's an ideology that black women are meant to clean up people's shit. That black women are meant to solve the problem or fix the issue. That they don't have an actual... It's like almost being like the gay character in Sex and the City. Like you're not... You, you know, well, not this and, and just like that. But in the old days when they had black male characters, like you don't actually have a life. It's like being the black... It's like being the gay male character in, in the old Sex and the City shows, right? It's like, oh, you don't... You know, you don't really matter until I make you matter. 
Your job here is to make me feel good. Your, your job here is to make me laugh and entertain me and be my my throw pillow. We don't need, you don't need to have a life of your own. We don't care about your feelings. You know, you don't need someone to cry on or, or be there for. We just need you to be here being that, 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 that perfect, you know, assistant. And I think that that trope, right, has happened in, in, in a lot of gay men's lives. And that's why sometimes we can connect with black women. I think I can. I, I have a lot of, um, I've had some conversations with a lot of, 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 of homegirls of mine that are black that just say, listen, we'll talk about the ways that we are often tokenized um, in certain cases, right? Like, I don't experience sexism, but I definitely know what it's like to be the the third wheel, uh, the invincible third wheel in certain, in certain dynamics. Sometimes by women, right? But like that reality of, you know, you're you're my gay friend and you're going to make me fabulous. And you're gonna make me feel good. And I and I remember Cardi was tweeting about that one time. It's like, oh, you know, you know, people need to have gay friends. They like, and I was like, I know that she didn't mean harm with that, but I look at some of these people, I'm just like, you're gonna read this wrong. And you're gonna think, oh, of course I got a gay friend in my life, because he's gonna get my life together. No, honey, I'm not here for that. I think when I was very young, in my early 20s, early, early 20s, maybe 19, 2021, 20, I was in that role for acceptance because in those dynamics at that time when I was being accessorized, I thought that that was how I get acceptance because I didn't want to be excluded. So I thought, oh, if I'm being invited to the table, if I'm being included in the table, this is how I stay at the table. This is how I stay in this orbit because you know, when you're, you know, sometimes when you're gay, right, you're, you're, you're ostracized, you're, you're excluded. And so at that point in my life, you know, I didn't have that many gay friends. Um, you know, Jamarcus, my bestie, right? He was at the time in Houston. So when I came to Philly, I didn't really have any other gay friends at the time. Um, because Penn was very straight in its own way. A lot of closeted folk, but again. And so there was a lot of women I was friends with at the time. Because a lot of straight men that were there were very subtly homophobic. It was like a, I fuck with you from a distance kind of thing. It wasn't really friends, it was acquaintanceships at the time. In the, in the beginning phases, until I got all popular and famous, I guess. And then everybody wanted to, oh, that, you know, Ernest is a cool gay guy, right? Fuck them. But in the very beginning, um, it was a lot of women. And at that time, you know, that being in that type of friendship dynamic with women was very much so like, oh, I get to go out with them. We're hanging out. There was like an acceptance where I could talk about guys. I could talk about things and no one was cringing. But at the same time, there was never really an invested interest in the things going on in my life outside of that. Like everybody knew I had a boyfriend or dated or did things, but like no one really, really, really cared. Uh, Most of those women at the time who I was friends with, I'm not friends with them anymore, clearly. But at that time, it was more of me being the listener. And I was, of course, listening because that's what friends do. But no one was ever invested in what my life was going on as a gay man. Like, I was more so as the person that was taking in everybody else's issues and everybody else's problems and helping the, the, the quote unquote problem solve it. And I thought that this was the only way that I was going to be able to maintain um, some level of community of friendships outside of the queer ones that I were used to going home. But as I got older, and as I got more um, self-aware and, 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 and comfortable in my skin and all of those things, I began to take a step back and say, 
look, I'm not trying to be the supporting actor in this situation. I'm not trying to be a supporting character as my default life. Like I am a leading man and I have a whole set of life experiences and things. And I need to speak on this and I need people that's going to listen and care. Like I shouldn't feel like I got to downplay or not even discuss anything. Like no one's checking in on me. No one's engaging me in this way at that time. My life is a whole lot better now, clearly. But at that time, that was frustrating. And I began to realize that I was an accessory, that I was the person that was just there to make everyone else fabulous, to tell everybody else, you know, what they could do and what's great about them was this. But like no one was, it was not reciprocal for me in that same way. And as I got older, I demanded more because I, I expected more. My life was very different. I was like, wait, I, I deserve more than this. This is not it. And so I cut those people and left them behind and then realized like, I want to be the leading man in my next ex- journey in my friendships. I want to be in a position where I, I have experiences and, 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 and my friends care about them and they're investing in them just as much as I'm investing in them. That this would be an equally yoked friendship and relationships and bonds. That this would not just be a situation where Ernest is the designated gay cheerleader. That was a change I made um, in my life. And I, and I see Black women in certain situations go through some of those same problems, right? Where they're often the, 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 the best, the ride or die, right? For their man or their homie. Or they're at a place where all these white women are having these issues and they're the one in the group that's going to be, you know, uh, the, the reassuring one that makes them all feel good. But who's actually checking in on them? Who's prioritizing their feelings? Who's, who's, who's there for them in that type of way? And, and where are they reciprocal? And so I, I have had the best relationships with black women who have been in that type of experience. And, and think about those experiences that way because it's, it's a unique experience and you, you, you won't know about it unless you've been through it. And a lot of white men, white women, black straight men don't, can't relate to this. It, and you're listening to the podcast. It's okay, but, but be mindful, right? Here's the moment, right? Be mindful about how you engage black women in your life. Be mindful about how you engage queer people in your life because those parallels are real. And a lot of times people don't think about that way. And I and I decided at a point of a certain point in my life, especially at 30, that I was not playing that role. There are so many people who are still trying to, you know, accessorize me in that way. And I've had to push them a little bit back from me. Because I'm not your source of entertainment. I can make you laugh and I can be funny. We could all do that, right? I'm a human. I'm going I'm funny as fuck, but if I feel or sense that I am just the gay friend so you can check off the box, like you know how people have the black friend to check off the box? I'm going to dip. <laughs> and I've had to do that. I I've had to do that. Um for my own self-care, right? Uh no explanation required, but I've had to do that um in certain situations. And I just Tell people, don't reiterate what you're not going to do. Just just be grateful. Grateful that you have my presence. Grateful that you have a black woman's presence for certain things. Grateful that you have those things. And just, just, and just, and just be reciprocal. Be giving. Be caring. Be those things. Because I do. I have white friends and that get it. Okay? I have 
straight friends, a lot of straight friends now that get it. And it's so empowering, right? But the group that I got, that got me through my wedding was not the same people that would have gotten me through it or would have ever been there if I kept on the same trajectory I was many years ago when I was at Penn. And, and, and it's a full circle for me to realize that like those people would have just wanted me to just be around. And I had to change that up for me. And to all the queer people listening to the show, and even black women, right? Look, look, look at how you're being utilized in certain spaces that are considered friendships. I'm not saying, you know, it don't happen at work because shit happens at work in different ways that is never in your control. But when you're looking at your personal dynamics, look how you're being centered and how you're being placed because that's going to really make the difference on how you decide to move forward or who you trust and everything else. So, you know, when I thought about this conversation, again, about Black women saving Kanye West, I was taken aback because I was like, listen, that, like, is that the, so is, is Black women just a remedy for, for fucked up people? Like, no, no, Kanye needs a therapist, y'all. And if that therapist just so happens to be a Black woman, then so be it. She's getting paid for her time, her services. But rather than naming other things than therapy, than medication, Black people are not the therapy. Black women are not the therapy, the medication that you can avoid um, to, to save yourself, quote unquote. Because these people deserve therapy too. These people need medication and their own things too. They need those things too. So they, if they, if they, how can they take that time to focus on their, their, their self-care and all those things if they're too busy trying to save your ass? Like at some point we all have to grow up, right? We all have to learn how to be independent thinkers, all of us, and 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 not use one demographic of people to fight our battles to do our shit for us. Kind of like how the NFL is using Loretta Lynch. But I must say she is getting paid a pretty penny. So I mean, some people choose to be tokenized. But over here, that's not what's happening. So, 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 so. Um, in wrapping up, I've been keeping up with the shows. I've been keeping up with the TV, y'all. I've been I've been keeping up with some of the, the latest shows that's been going out coming out. The Gilded Age is being renewed for a second season, which is was just promising. You know, of course, this was the creator from Downton Abbey, which I love. I love the Downton Abbey movie. Gerard and I watched that like when it first came out. We was obsessed, and I hear they're making another one, which I'm gonna watch again. So I and I enjoy I enjoy that. Um, Euphoria, y'all. Listen, I. Listen, I want Rue, I want Zendaya to get her second Emmy, by all means. I want Zendaya to get her second Emmy, right? She's killing it as Rue. This is great. But I can't get with Euphoria, y'all. I, I, I tried, y'all. I was trying to watch it. I, you know, it's just, you know, I don't want to put myself through that. I don't even know if it's, I don't even know if it's even, you know, it's 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 a really interesting experience. And I just feel like. We're just seeing these people, these kids self-destruct, and I don't necessarily need it. But I want Zendaya to get that Emmy, though, because she definitely out here jumping on things, breaking shit, and losing. I mean, I appreciate all that she's bringing to it, but like, I just feel like at some point we're breaking and yelling things to just to just get things. I don't know. There's just it's just a lot going on. It's just chaos for me, um, and and I don't know what it is about people excited about. Young people being engaged in sex and drugs. I don't know. There's a fa- infatuation with young people doing bad things that that people love in entertainment. I get it, but it's just I don't know. It's, you know, it's it's not for me. But I appreciate the that that she's you know, you know, bringing 
this level of acting because, okay, Malcolm Marie, we're just going to forget about that. Um, so, yeah. Power, the new power, power force is good. This Tommy and the, the characters, I, I, I like it. I I like, you know, the more melanated power book. You know, I've been enjoying, like, power book two was just it for me. But, I, I you know, people do like this new power with Tommy and stuff. I get it. You know, it's 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 good. You know, it's good. It's not bad at all at all. I mean, that canon, Kanan story, that whatever, that was just, I, we didn't need that. We did not need that at all. I, did, I didn't need Kanan's life story or whatever. That was just pointless. But I, I really do like book two of Ghost, and I know they're going to have a new season, so I'm excited about that. Mary J. Blige, oh my goodness, her acting. But this new power force, I think it's definitely going to keep the franchise going. It's cool. Um, Abbott Elementary, oh my God. So I am hearing the season finale is coming up this week of this show. It's going to be episode nine. This show went by so fast, but it was so, it's been so good. Um, the, Last episode with the boyfriend and the rapping. I don't want to talk too much about it, but this is gold, y'all. Like, we're in the golden age of good... Like, I don't know what another golden age... I don't know, but this sitcom comedy is everything. It's it's everything. Abbott Elementary is everything. The fact that it's 30 minutes is all we need. It reminds me of when Atlanta first came out, and Atlanta's like 30 minutes in each episode. That first season was just fire. Okay, the first season of Atlanta, and then of course the second season was good too. You know, um, uh, Jackin season or whatever it was, uh, Robin season, I believe it was called. Like that was cool, but this, this, this is Abbott. It's just, oh, mwah, it's just such a good show. It's just, it's just every time, every time I think that just they just keep pushing the envelope, and so this next episode is the finale. And I'm in it. Give it all the Emmys. I think, you know, Ted Lasso, you got to watch your fucking back. Even though I know people love them some Ted Lasso. But that right there at Abbott Elementary, give it give it up. ABC, shout out to y'all. Because, I mean, and, and let's be clear, it's better than Insecure. Like, I, I don't know. Abbott is doing something for me that these other shows just have not done. Like, I appreciate the, the creativity. She is really, like... Miss Brunson is bringing it, okay? The acting, like Shirley Ralph is back on TV and she is great, okay? James Tyler, she brought back like TV, like superstars, back to TV, black TV legends. Like, you know, James from um, Everybody Hates Chris, you know, like she's bringing back some real TV gold to make this show work. And all of the social issues and, and the new talent, the, you know, the principle is just everything. Love this show. Like, seriously, it's a, it's a godsend. Clearly, there's going to be a season two. And they understood the assignment and they are killing it. And the Philly references, the the just the love of like all of it. It's just so sweet and so timely. It's just what we need right now. I just, I really love that show. I It is the best new show on TV. The best new show. And it should win comedy. I, I really think that it should win Best New... I think it's going to get all the Emmy nominations, but I wanted to win some things because, good God, it's 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 great. It's great. So, yeah. Well, you know. Until then, everybody, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show... Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. 
Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com. <laughs>